Welcome to Primer, a podcast that gets you closer to the heart of the matter. As you may know, the Primer is a small cap at the base of ammunition that when struck by a firing pin goes BAM. It ignites the gunpowder and sends the bullet downrange. The point of the podcast is like that, to get you going in the right direction quickly by briefly tackling a variety of subjects like books, people, events, issues, whatever. After listening, if you want to take it further, you can. Episodes and more information can be found at personalprimer.com. All right. Hello and welcome to this week's Primer Plus episode on the Battle of Lepanto. My name is Melissa Ryle and I'm a contributor for the Primer podcast. Uh, today I'll be interviewing Professor Susan Hansen and she is a, an associate professor and chair of the history department at the University of Dallas, which is a small Catholic liberal arts college. For 20 years, she has taught American civilization on their Dallas campus and Western civilization on their Rome campus. And as the UD students cross from the Italian peninsula to Greece across the Adriatic by ferry, they chant Chesterton's resounding poem, Lepanto, as they sail over the site of the battle, the sunken ships and arms still unrecovered by maritime archeology. span A statue of Cervantes, the Spanish author who fought in the battle, greets students of history in the Bay of Lepanto. Dr. Hansen received her PhD in British and American history from Rice University in Houston. She taught for the James Madison Fellowship at Georgetown and is a fellow of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton. She has published on GK Chesterton and English Patriotism, Henry Adams and the Adams Family in the American Intellectual Tradition and the History of Liberal Arts Education. She has done so much and we are so excited to have her with us today. So. Um, Professor, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yes. So as I mentioned, we're talking about the Battle of Lepanto this evening. So for those unfamiliar, can you please describe what the Battle of Lepanto was and why it was significant? Okay, so perhaps the, the best way to just enter into um, thinking about the Battle of Lepanto is to realize that before 1492, Columbus sailing the ocean blue, um, and all of the great naval wars and naval battles that take place all across the Atlantic and the Pacific, right? So if we think of the Battle of the Atlantic in World War II, or we think of um, the Battle of the Pacific in World War II, uh, maybe people have seen the movie Master and Commander, um, where you see Russell Crowe, you know, as a, a British um, admiral being chased around um, South America from the Atlantic into the Pacific by a, by a French frigate um, during the Napoleonic Wars, right? So modern history is full of a lot of great naval battles that take place globally, right? All around the world. But the Battle of Lepanto was the largest naval battle ever to take place in the Mediterranean when the Mediterranean was considered the middle of Middle Earth, right? So literally the, the, the name Mediterranean, Mediterre, means Middle Earth, right? The battle for Middle Earth. And so the battle for Middle Earth um, for people in the 1400s, right? People in the 1500s, the battle for Middle Earth was not a a land battle, the battle for, for Middle Earth was a naval battle for control of the Mediterranean and all of the commercial routes all across the Mediterranean, which had sustained um, the growth of Western civilization um, ever since um, the Phoenician sailors um, had established you know, 
um, Carthage, right, and had fought over Sicily. So um, it's a it's a battle for the control of the Mediterranean. Um, so that's I think the first um, way of thinking about how important it is. Um, and the second way of thinking about it is that it is a major turning point in the millennia, the thousand years long um, crusading struggle mm -hmm. between um, the forces of Islam, um, diverse um, and complicated as those forces were, and um, Christian Europe, um, as diverse and complicated as, as Christian Europe was during the Middle Ages. Um, so um, what had kind of come to a head in 1571, at the time of the Battle of Lepanto, was that all of these diverse uh, Muslim forces across um, North Africa and the Middle East um, had, for the first time, become united, right? So you had Barbary pirates in Morocco, in Libya, in what is, you know, Tunisia. Um, you had Egyptian Muslims. Then you had Arab Muslims in the Middle East. You had Persian Muslims in what is now Iran. Um, and then you had Turkish Muslims in, um, in Asia Minor. Um, and so that was all, you know, very diverse. And there's a lot of wars between them, right? Um, at the same time, you have the rise of the Franks, you have the rise of the, um, the Ottonian um, Holy Roman Empire, um, you have the rise of um, English kings and the Scottish kings, um, and the, the different um, Christian republics um, and city-states in Italy. So that's all very diverse as well. So I don't want to make it sound like there's this monolithic Muslim power and this monolithic Christian power, um, because sometimes in order to get um, leverage in their own sphere, they would, you know, cross over and create alliances, right, uh, with, um, with, you know, different um, religious groups and ethnic groups. Um, but um, just prior to the Battle of Lepanto, um, the world of Islam had become much more united um, under Suleiman the Magnificent magnificent mm -hmm. and had become what in the modern period all the way up until world war one is called um, the ottoman turk empire um, and the ottoman turk empire had won a great land victory they had won a great land victory in the east at the same time that the christian forces which had also become increasingly united um, under the Holy Roman Empire, mm. had won a great victory in the West, right? So if you think about moving around in a kind of chess match around the Mediterranean, right? And ever since, right, the Muslims had tried to move from Spain, you know, from Morocco into Spain and then across the Pyrenees into France, right? Christian forces had been trying to push them back, right? So from the Battle of Tours, um, the Franks before Charlemagne um, are pushing the Muslim forces across the Pyrenees into Spain, right? And then pushing them down through Spain, literally from 732 all the way to 1492. So for 500 years, this, this battle is going on for the Spanish peninsula, right? Um, at the same time, um, the Byzantine Christian Empire in Asia Minor had also been battling Muslims. 
different Muslims, right? They're fight, fighting Turkish Muslims. Um, over here, they're you know fighting a different dynasty. Um, but nevertheless, there's a kind of chess match, right, on the on the land war, right, from this peninsula, this peninsula, yeah. right? <laughs> right, across the Gibraltar Straits, across the Dardanelles Straits. Like we'll go into Africa, you'll come into Europe, right, back and forth for the two exits of the Mediterranean, right, to control the eastern and the western exits of the Mediterranean. Right. Um, and so in some sense, you could say in the 1400s, the century before the Battle of Lepanto, each side had won a great land victory. Okay. So the um, Ottoman Turk Empire had taken the capital of Christian Byzantium. They had taken Constantinople and it was now Istanbul. So 1453, Constantinople becomes Istanbul. Uh, I don't know if... Um, the audience remembers um, the song. Oh yeah, I was just thinking that. I'm like, oh my goodness, yes. yes. I feel like it was. It was. It's very much an '80s thing because I I seem to recall that um, during the great Olympic struggles between the Soviet Union and um, and the USA um, at the end of the Cold War, um, a lot of the the Russian um, figure skaters used to like to um, skate to Constantinople. Is this yeah. <laughs> so? Uh, so it's very popular in the '80s. Um, but um, so they had just taken Constantinople, which uh, became Istanbul and still is today, right? So that's huge, right? That's that's historic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Something that completely changes, right? Constantinople since Constantine, right, becomes Istanbul to today, right? Mm -hmm. So that's important. Meanwhile, all of the different kingdoms of Spain, the multiple Spanish-speaking Christian kingdoms, had intermarried, right, and conquered each other until the last piece of the puzzle, the kingdom of Aragon and the kingdom of Castile came together to form Spain and managed to defeat the Muslims at the Battle of Granada in 1492. It's an easy date to remember because it's only the success right? at Columbus, right? Yeah. So it's only the success at the um, gates of, of Granada that enables um, King and Queen Ferdinand and Isabella to fund Christopher Columbus's voyage okay. um, because of their success. Yeah. So, so they had they had taken the rest of Spain, right? In some sense, Spain is created out of the alliance structure that is created to uh, expel the Muslim power from Spain, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, so you had had these two battles, right? Victory over here, right? Victory over here. But it just goes to show you that land victories are just not as important as naval victories, right? Mm -hmm. um, because for them, naval victories were um, what air power, right? And what communications and and commerce power is, right? Um, it's your it's your your road of communication, right? So in the world before railroads, in the world before cars and trucks and planes, right? Um, if you control shipping, if you you know, then you control all communications um, and commerce. So, so in some sense, the 1400s is a draw. And you have these two powers, the Holy Roman Empire and the Ottoman Turk Empire, going head to head um, in the Mediterranean for a, the greatest naval battle um, before the modern period, 
um, before Christopher Columbus's voyage. So um, it's, a, it's a united Muslim army and then a band of brothers, right? A, uh, an eclectic alliance of different Christian forces. Um, there, are, there are ships from Venice. There are ships from the kingdom of Naples. Um, there are ships from the Spanish. There are ships from the Genoese. Um, and there's a Vatican fleet as well. So it's a little, you know, band of brothers operation, right? Um, where there's different commanders with their different groups of ships and they're, you know, having to kind of negotiate how are we going to go into battle? And the leader of this quirky band is, um, is actually um, the bastard son of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Oh, wow. Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, did not lead that great naval battle himself, right? Wow. Um, it was led by um, one of his sons, by one of his many mistresses, mm -hmm. um, whose name was Don Juan de Austria, right? Don John of Austria. Um, and he, he, led the, um, he led the Christian forces to victory in the Battle of Lepanto, um, which took place between the Greek peninsula and the Italian peninsula. Um, and so of course, um, the Italian peninsula is the central peninsula of the Mediterranean. Right. Um, if you control the Italian peninsula and Sicily, right, then you really have great control over the Mediterranean. Um, just for example, um, you know, America has, uh, the United States of America has a, a large naval base in Naples even today, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's just um, geography doesn't change um, from from century to century, and certain certain geographic features remain important um, no matter what. Um, so yeah, it's central, it's big, it's important, right? Um, it's probably the um, the the turning point of the Crusades. The Crusades are not finished after that. Um, because even after that, great, great land battles continue. Um, the Muslims um, surround Vienna, um, even as late as 1683, um, at the time that William and Mary College is already founded, you know, the alma mater of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Um, the Muslims are at the gates of Vienna. Um, so there are naval, uh, sorry, there are land battles afterwards that are important. Um, but really, the Battle of Lepanto is the, the linchpin, the turning point of that great struggle. So as you talked about the band of brothers of, you know, the Christian forces versus the United yeah. Islamic forces, right. were they outnumbered as far as ships and artillery? And, you know, what, what was that situation like? Yeah. So um, the Christian forces were outnumbered. Um, but they um, had planned a little bit of a surprise. Right. Um, they were incredibly well armed. So they had actually weighed down their ships with an incredible tonnage of cannon, which made it so that their ships were less maneuverable and less fast. Um, but once they got in position, um, they had enough artillery to do very serious damage. Um, and so the basic battle formation of the Battle of Lepanto is um, a crescent, um, a crescent formation for the Ottoman Turk uh, Navy. And the, um, the Christian Navy led by Don John of Austria kind of moving into that crescent, right? 
um, almost as if they're going to be surrounded, right? But they've got these these heavy ships in the water um, with um, an unexpected and unusual amount of of artillery. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in in a certain sense, I don't know if you've seen the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, but as you're describing it, I'm thinking about you know this small little pirate army, you know, going through the through the British army. So. Um, is there a significance to the crescent shape for the Islamic forces because of, I, I know, um, uh, I mean, it's a, a star and, and a crescent moon, correct? Right. Um, so it's the symbol of the Ottoman Turk um, Empire. Yeah. Um, but I think it was more strategic. Um, they thought okay. they could surround the, the, the fleet, right? Okay. Um, so um, this battle, which I think a lot of Americans don't really know much about, um, is very central to the thinking of um, the people in the 1500s. So um, the day that it was fought um, is sometimes referred to as the Feast of Our Lady of Victory. Um, sometimes it's referred to as the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary um, because the Pope at the time had asked um, Christians, right, in whatever land they lived in, um, to pray the Rosary for the victory of Christendom that would save the Italian peninsula um, from being overrun um, by Muslim forces. Um, and you know, that was a very serious danger um, because the Muslim forces had um, attacked a number of the little republics up the coast of Italy. Um, so, you know, if you go to Italy, I mean, everybody loves, these are, you know, great, um, you know, to, to go to a beach resort on the Adriatic. Yeah. You know, everybody loves one of these, you know, all the buildings are white and they're kind of tiered down the cliffs to the, you know, to the ocean. So they're spectacularly beautiful, mm-hmm. right? Um, but so Bari and Otranto, right, and all of these little independent republics, right? There was no such thing as the unified state of Italy at the time, right? Um, it, so they had been attacked by Muslim forces, um, as had um, Venice and Venetian ships. Um, um, and when they took control of one of those cities, the, the city of Otranto, they insisted on mass conversions of all of the people in Otranto. Yeah. And um, Pope Francis um, just recently canonized um, the 70 martyrs of Otranto who chose death rather than um, to give up their faith in Christ um, at, at that time. So there was a, a serious uh, possibility um, that, that Italy, could be overrun just as Greece and Asia Minor had been overrun um, by the Ottoman Turk forces. Wow, so October 7th is the day, right? Yes. That's the day October of- 7th, 1571. Yes, so yeah. it, w- it wasn't just a one day battle though, right? Like did this, this went on for weeks? Um, actually, no, it, it was a, um, from sunrise to sunset. Um, battle. I mean, this was, it, this was pretty fast. Um, <laughs> once they yeah. sailed into sight of each other, um, they fought it out um, and, um, you know, and um, declared victory uh, by, by the end of the day. The, the shout of, um, of a victory came up from the, uh, the Christian ships. And um, in fact, um, Don John of Austria is buried in Spain, I believe in Barcelona. Um, his tomb says that he is the natural son of 
of Charles V, meaning he's not the legitimate um, son. Um, and he and in that church they have the the prow of his ship um, uh, that was and, and there's a, a large black crucifix that was kind of his his symbol as they went in into battle. Mm. Um, so it's um, it's actually it's part of modern history, right? It's um, it's not antiquity. It's only 500 years ago. Um, and so we have lots of records. Um, one time in the Vatican archives, um, I saw um, Queen Elizabeth's letter to the Pope congratulating him on the victory at Lepanto. Um, so, you know, we, we have a lot of records of the event. We have um, eyewitness accounts. Um, as we mentioned at the beginning, um, the great poet and novelist, um, Spanish poet and novelist Cervantes fought in the Battle of Lepanto. Um, so we have, we have, you know, eyewitness uh, memories of the battle. Yeah. So just, I guess, more of a technical question when it comes to the battles, you know, if they're going back and forth for centuries leading up to this, um, land wars and then over the sea, you know, how did they communicate, hey, this is the day we're, we're coming at you. We're going to, um, we're going to fight to the death uh, over, over this. Um, mm -hmm. Did they send... Um, letters i guess right you know, versus you know yeah. well i think a lot of it involves um i think a lot of it involves a kind of uh, medieval form of espionage right <laughs> um, <laughs> trying to find out where the muslim force is um is grouping right um and how large it is um and trying to you know rally all of the different um christian fleets together at the same spot um, and then, you know, trying to arrange an, an encounter, um, you know, so um, the the Muslim Navy had just been leaving what's called the Bay of Lepanto, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so uh, they, they met on the on the high seas outside of the Bay of Lepanto, right? Wow, my goodness. Okay. So you mentioned uh, Our Lady of Victories as a uh, popular title for the Blessed mm -hmm. Virgin Mary that came from this battle. And, um, and, and you, you re referred to why she's you know, closely related to this battle, but why do you think that that in particular is, you know, a devotion within, especially I know for Catholics, um, mm -hmm. uh, a devotion, you know, uh, that has kind of sustained until this day? So um, the long, um, centuries long struggle um, between the Christian West and um, the variety of, of Muslim forces in the Middle East um, really began with the capture and of the, um, of the Holy Land and the sacred places in Jerusalem that were associated with Christ's life. Um, in particular, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, um, which was Christ's tomb um, from which he rose, and um, Calvary. These had been Christian sites that um, had been pilgrimage sites from very early on in, in Christian life. I mean, in the 300s, we already have um, the Emperor Constantine's mother um, going in search of trying to find the true cross, um, trying to find the manger in which Christ was born. Um, and so the tradition of going on pilgrimage to visit the sites where Jesus actually lived, which was very important for distinguishing um, Jesus Christ as God from the mythic gods of, of the ancient world, um, to kind of emphasize that he's 
an actual historical character who lived at a particular moment in a particular place. And so to go visit that place um, was very important to emphasize that he's not like Apollo or, or Zeus or right. Right, um, these mythic gods. Um, and so the, um, when, when Jerusalem was captured by Muslim forces, initially they did allow the, the continuation of, of Christian pilgrimages there. Um, but, a, but, you know, in, in the infighting between different Muslim forces, um, there, you know, different, um, sorry, different um, powers came um, to the fore in Jerusalem and destroyed the Holy Sepulcher, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, um, and made it much more difficult for um, Christians to go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And so both the practice of um, the Stations of the Cross okay. and the practice of the Holy Rosary um, are kind of responses to the fact that Christians couldn't go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land anymore. And so to reflect on Christ's life, um, to walk the path that Christ took um, from the place where he was condemned by Pontius Pilate, along the, the way of the cross, um, to Calvary where he was crucified. Um, if you couldn't do it um, in the Holy Land, well, you could walk it in prayer around your church, right? Mm -hmm. um, or if you couldn't reflect on the mysteries of Christ's life, his, his incarnation in Nazareth, his birth in Beth Bethlehem, his resurrection in Jerusalem, his you know, walk to, on the road to Emmaus you know, with, with his disciples after his resurrection. If you couldn't do that in the Holy Land on pilgrimage, you could at least um, ponder these things in your heart, right? And that's the, the phrase that, um, that the gospels use about Mary, that she pondered these things in her heart. And so the practice of the rosary of, as a kind of alternative to pilgrimage um, became very important. So it was already associated with um, the struggle to, to connect, right? With the time and the place of, of Christ's life on earth. Okay, so it was, uh, I think it was, was it Pope Pius V at the time of the Battle of Lepanto? So, so he was inviting the faithful to pray the rosary. So is, is that also why then they go from saying, okay, Our Lady of Victory is also known as Our Lady of the Rosary for that particular day. Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's a dual name, right? Our Lady of Victory, Our Lady of the Rosary. Through the rosary, we gain the victory. Mm -hmm. And there's even a story that... Um, Pope Pius V um, was in his chapel praying at the moment of the battle and that he came out of his chapel um, to say that victory had been won um, even before news um, had, had come you know, across the ocean and, um, and, and all the way to Rome, um, that he was um, he either had had a vision of the, of the victory or that he was confident that God had heard the prayers of um, of Christendom through the hands of of the you know Blessed Mother, yeah, so, which is amazing because just right. that that distance. So oh, okay, yeah. there's no text messages coming through. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it takes you a day to drive and then a day on the ferry to get there. So wow. if you knew they had won, and and that's nowadays. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh my goodness! So by the time everyone else kind of heard the official news like mm -hmm. okay we've come out victorious right. um how long did that take um well i think it it 
you know, within within a week or so, it reaches um, probably Venice, you know, and then okay. and then spreads, right? I mean, obviously there are ambassadors and diplomats, you know, in a kind of network all across Europe at the time, mm-hmm. right? Um, so was it a pretty immediate shift then, like with this victory, um, as far as the the impacts of um, you know the the Islamic forces and before the Battle of Lepanto um, in in 1571, um, the Ottoman Turk um, Empire had the aspiration of turning the Mediterranean Sea into a completely um, Muslim sea. They said a sea on which no Christian ship could sail, right? Um, and they just made shipping very dangerous, right? Um, and very expensive and and the insurance for your shipping went way up um so this was a problem um islamic pirates in the mediterranean is a problem even at the beginning of american history um um, the adams family um, john adams and john quincy adams are um, adamant that we needed to build a navy um it was something that thomas jefferson had to deal with um the issue of the barbary pirates um um, attacking american shipping when they were no longer um protected by the british navy um so that that was a very that was very problematic um but after um, 1571 the battle of lepanto it took a long time for the ottoman turk empire to recover from that naval battle um building ships was expensive um and and to recover um from that um, from the destruction of that navy, um, took them took them a long time. Wow. So, in looking at you know the, the entirety of all of this, uh, you know, and as you mentioned, there are some uh, some great historical pieces that have come out from this, mm-hmm. as well as uh, G.K. Chesterton's uh, poem of Lepanto. Mm-hmm. Um, so, why is that such a big part of, um, especially when you bring your students over there? Yes. So um, I did um, begin life as a British historian. Um, I didn't primarily um, start out teaching Western civilization and thinking about the centrality of 1571 and the the naval battle of Lepanto for kind of the the fate of of Western civilization in Christian Europe. Um, I started out um, life as a British historian, very interested in um, World War I and World War II. very interested in how um, I'd say the, the hobbits of England managed to <laughs> defeat the Mordor of fascism. You know, no, it's not a, it's not really okay to make you know such a simplistic um, historical appropriation of Tolkien's you know magnificent um, um, poetic work. But um, but that's that's how I got into it, and um, I realized that G.K. Chesterton was very important for developing um, an understanding of what it meant to be English. Um, and being attached to freedom um, and to all of the, the little simple pleasures that freedom gives, you know, having a beer at the pub with your friends and gardening, pottering about in your garden, right? And um, as George Orwell says, biking to, biking to Holy Communion in a misty morning, right? These things that are just sort of the simple pleasures of life, right? Um, and so I realized that Chesterton was, um, was very important um, for developing that vision of the English and their love for freedom. Um, and so I knew Chesterton's poem, Lepanto, um, which this idea of a band of brothers, right, fighting a great and united and overpowering force, right? Um, Chesterton, in writing his poem, Lepanto, 
was actually using Lepanto as a metaphor for what's happening in the 20th century. Okay. Um, just as in some ways Tolkien's um, great novel is a it's a metaphor for this you know the struggle of a band of brothers right the scots and the the french resistance and the you know the escaped polish you know fighters and the americans and the canadians right against you know nazi germany um the idea of a, a band of brothers a kind of motley band right all speaking with different accents and you know coming from different places i mean i think when we um we watch um we watch um, Saving Private Ryan, right? Mm -hmm. You've yeah. got like, you know, the evangelical kid from Iowa and the, you know, the Jewish kid from Brooklyn, New York. And, the, you know, it's, it's a motley band of brothers, um, but there's one thing that they all agree on and, and that is freedom. Um, so Chesterton, when he wrote Lepanto, wasn't primarily thinking about the struggle between um, the Muslim forces and the Christian forces. Um, for him, Christian Europe had become very secularized. Um, and at his time, the Ottoman Turk Empire was no longer um, a massive world power. Um, so he wasn't primarily concerned with that struggle. He was using it as a metaphor for what um, the free West would go through in the 20th century dealing with totalitarianism. Um, so he brings back right, something that had been kind of going out of style, which is a kind of resounding martial poetry, um, which, you know, I think to the modern ear can sound um, a little unpolitically correct um, because of its rhythm, its kind of martial rhythm. Um, what sometimes uh, when they're referring to Homer's um, Greek, um, they call the, um, the galloping hexameter, right? Like a horse galloping. Um, so the beginning of Chesterton's poem talks about how the Sultan in the Ottoman Turk Empire has taken over Constantinople and turned it into Istanbul, right? And so you, the beginning of the poem starts with this paradox that there's a Sultan of Byzantium, right? And that he's smiling a kind of smug smile, realizing, right? Um, that there's no great leader of the Christians um, to come that, that can match him and would come against him, right? So it begins, white founts falling in the courts of the sun and the sultan of byzantium is smiling as they run there is laughter like the fountains in that face of all men feared it stirs the forest darkness the darkness of his beard it curls the blood-red crescent the crescent of his lips for the inmost sea of all the earth is shaken with his ships and i think that that phrase the inmost sea of all the earth is shaken with his ships um, is actually a wonderful little poetic tag, poetic phrase to kind of capture um, the situation. And then you have um, this idea that there's, there's really no comparable leader on the Christian side. And so they have to look for um, Don John of Austria, who is an illegitimate son of you know, the Holy Roman Emperor. He doesn't have a throne. He doesn't have a crown. Um, and you know, he, takes up the, he takes up the charge. Um, even though the Pope has asked England for help, has asked Spain for help, um, you know, has asked France for help, but he's not getting what he needs. So he needs to put together a, a motley crew. Um, 
So let's see where we can pick up the pick up the poem. Um, it says, um, "In that enormous silence, tiny and unafraid, comes up along a winding road the noise of the crusade. Strong gongs groaning as the guns boom far. Don John of Austria is going to the war. Stiff flags straining in the night blast cold in the gloom black purple in the glint old gold. Torchlight crimson on the copper kettle drums and the tuckets and the trumpets and the cannon and he comes. Don John laughing in the brave beard curls." spurning up his stirrups like the thrones of all the world, holding his head up as a flag of all the free. Love light of Spain, hurrah, death light of Africa. Don John of Austria is riding to the sea. Um, so it's a very resounding poem. It's a lot of, it's a lot of fun um, to do as a group. Um, but that part is very visual. Um, Chesterton never went to university. He was an artist. And so it's very visual and very colorful. And it evokes the... Um, the Baroque paintings, uh, which are very dark, but then the glints of gold, right, um, in the in the darkness and the and the vivid reds, you know, that we associate with Caravaggio, right. Mm -hmm. So there's the there's the kind of um, he's attempting to to create the Baroque atmosphere um, of the the era of Lepanto. Wow, that's awesome! Thank you so much. I am impressed. <laughs> Do you have the whole thing memorized? I only have the first verse memorized, but I have students who have the whole thing memorized. Wow, that's awesome! Yeah. So, just to as we kind of get ready to close here, what are some significant historical takeaways that one could take from this battle? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think uh, one very um, one very important thing is that, um, as, I, as I said before, there are um, certain geographical features. There are certain um, there are certain elements that don't change very much from century to century. Um, and so, if there's a concern about land war, but also naval war, diplomatic alliances as well as artillery, right? Um, that there's, when you're looking at a major world event that, um, that transforms things, you are, it's a very complicated arena, right? You need to get to know the cast of characters, right? On either side. Mm -hmm. There's usually a lot of struggling and infighting and, you know, different plans and plans going awry and people dying at the last minute. And then you need to get a new leader. And, you know, so it's very complicated. And yet, um, once you kind of dig into the historical world, you start to, to get an eye for, um, you know, if you're looking at the at the Civil War, you also need to look at land battles. But just because Gettysburg is incredibly important, you don't want to forget about what's happening um, with regard to the Navy um, and the diplomatic struggles, um, the the different um, the different personnel struggles within um, Lincoln's government with regard to you know, slavery and abolition. You know, so historical events are very complicated. Um, and so um, even in a battle that's like the Battle of Lepanto that's so um, somehow gives you a sense of crisp, clear, um, historical before and after, and it's transformative, um, as soon as you get close to the ground, history becomes incredibly complex, right? Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. So thank you so much, Professor, for, for joining us. Um, is there anything else that we have forgotten to touch on on this, on this battle? 
Yeah, I um, I just would like to say that there's uh, there are a couple of books, a very old book um, called Mohammed and Charlemagne by Henri Perrin, which is it's an old classic. Um, it's not a, an up to date history book, but it it gives the sense of how central. Um, this struggle has been to the European imagination. Um, And then more recently, Niccolo Caponi um, has a a book that is very detailed with regard to the blow by blow, ship by ship, gun by gun, officer by officer, and that's called The Victory of the West. Um, And so Mm -hmm. if people wanted to pursue, you know, either the the imaginative place that Lepanto has, right, in in the identity of the West or the details of battle. Um, those are two places that they could go, Henri Perrin and um, Niccolo Caponi. Wonderful. So we will definitely link those um, on our, you know, continued um, study uh, show notes, uh, as well as a link to Chesterton's poem. Um, so thank you to everyone for listening to this week's Primer Plus episode. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and tell a friend. For more information and to find the episode notes and additional ammunition, please go to personalprimer.com. Thank you so much, Professor. Yes, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you.